We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> you talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And away we go. Episode 18 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. It is a day on which we have piping hot Washington football team news to get into. While many of you were sleeping, while some of you were engaged in deviant acts, the Washington football team got itself a quarterback. The search is no more. The search is over. At least in terms of man number three in the mix for 2021. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Fitz Magic, is coming to Washington. No, he is not a long-term solution. No, he is not a franchise quarterback. But yes, he may well be our QB1 for 2021. What had been a slow day one of the NFL's legal tampering period for Washington. Some might say a disappointing day one of the NFL's legal tampering period for Washington, though I wouldn't necessarily say that. But whatever you want to label day one as, it ends with a bang. It ends with a whopper. Danny, talk to me, Bubala. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, yes. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Danny. Big, big news. Uh, Monday night, ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter breaking the news with a tweet at 11.05 p.m. Eastern. You never know when Washington football team news will break. You never know when our world will forever be changed. All right, maybe saying our world is forever changed is a bit much, but you get the idea. But anyway, good morning. Good to be with you here. Another jam-packed show today. I will attack the Ryan Fitzpatrick news from all angles. I will get into the other developments for Washington on day one of the legal tampering period, including the defections of Ronald Darby and Kevin Pierre-Lewis. What's going on with the free agent market as a whole? Why is it moving rather slowly? So many of the big names still out there. Might Washington be on the verge 
of properly exploiting that. We have a special guest on today's show, Gary Williams, winning his coach in Maryland basketball history. We talked Terps is the NCAA tournament first round matchup with UConn good or bad for Maryland. And wait till you hear what Gary has to say about the Mark Turgeon, Jawan Howard incident at the Big Ten tournament. Dominant win for our Capitals on Monday night with the game of the season for the Caps so far on Tuesday night. Caps Islanders at Capital One on this Tuesday night. Another loss for the Wizards on Monday night. And I'll talk Nationals and Orioles on this podcast, including finally Mayor Bowser allowing the Nats to have some fans at Nationals Park to begin the season. That was news that broke late on Monday night in terms of the Nats announcing their fan attendance policy to begin the season. You see all kinds of stuff happening on Monday night. I want to hear from you. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Normally at this time in the show, I'll do something kind of, you know, offbeat or I'll read an email or two or we'll have some scheduled fun with some dopey thing going on. But you know what? I don't think today's a day to do that. Today is not a day for nonsense. Today is a day to properly assess the mega news that broke late on Monday night. So let us now dive headfirst into Fitz Magic coming to Washington. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, sir, Danny. So isn't it funny sometimes how a day can start one way or be going one way and then wind up in an entirely different way? You know, there's that thing that people have been doing on Twitter for a while where it's like how it started, you know, how it ended or how it started, how it is now, you know, whatever that thing is. Anyway, did you catch this on Monday as we're all kind of waiting throughout the afternoon for something big to happen. You know, Washington football team, all the salary cap space. It's day one of the legal tampering period. What's the big splash? What are the big splashes that our team is going to end up making? And one of the things that really started to gain steam on Monday was Washington being in on Mitchell Trubisky. Did you catch this? Did you follow this? NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL.com, NFL Network, said that Washington had some interest in Trubisky And also in another player, a fellow unrestricted free agent quarterback in Ryan Fitzpatrick. And sure enough, Washington ends up going with one of those guys, but it ends up being the latter and not the former. Washington reportedly agreeing on a contract with Ryan Fitzpatrick. The contract, a one-year $10 million contract with a maximum value of $12 million. Now, as is the case with every NFL contract, the devil be in the details. So we have to see what exactly is the structure of the deal, how much of that is completely guaranteed. Um, if it's, you know, what we think it is, it's a contract that you give to a guy who you feel like could be your starter, though isn't like definitely going to come in and be your starter. You know, this is not say what the Marcus Mariota contract is, with the Las Vegas Raiders, what the Washington football team would have inherited had it traded for Marcus Mariota, where it's a $10 million deal, but if the guy ends up starting for you for the entire year, it ends up going up to like $20 million. That's not what this is. Maximum value per the reporting here of $12 million. Now, it is worth noting what ESPN NFL Adam Schefter reported very clearly on Monday night. Fitzpatrick expected to head to Washington's training camp as the starter, okay? I mean, Schefter said that. He said it was per source, and, you know, you can take a guess as to who that source is, but you would think it's someone high up in the Washington Football Operations Department, you know, maybe even Ron Rivera himself. Now, it's interesting with Schefter specifically, because when he tweeted this, he said competition from Taylor Heineke and made no mention of Kyle Allen. But then if you read the article on ESPN.com, it distinctly says competition from Taylor Heineke 
and Kyle Allen. So I thought the tweet was interesting from Schefter because I was kind of like, whoa, what happened to Kyle Allen here? Is he just like not even part of the mix? I think that just may have been, though, you know, an honest omission. I mean, I can only imagine what a guy like Schefter goes through on a day like Monday where, like, just the NFL is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and there's all this movement and you're texting back and forth with agents and coaches and players and general managers. And it's like, if you don't include both Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen in a tweet late on Monday night, like, it can be forgiven. It can be understood. So anyway, it certainly would appear that there's going to be a three-way battle at quarterback, as there should be. This is what I have preached from the second that Washington's 2020 season ended. The second that that game was over, that super wild card loss at home to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back in January, I wanted an open competition, Heineke, Allen, and somebody else. A, an acquisition of consequence in the offseason, either via the draft or free agency or trade, and it looks like we're going to have that, although clearly this is being positioned both contractually and from a standpoint of how it's being reported with Fitzpatrick going into the competition as the presumed starter. I do want to make this clear, though. I want this to be an open and honest competition. I don't want this to be a competition with a predetermined ending, okay? I want this to be Fitzpatrick versus Heineke versus Allen and may the best man win, okay? I don't want this to be, well, we really want Fitzpatrick to be the guy, so we're going to kind of tip the scales in old Fitzmagic's favor. No, I want the best man to win. This was the mistake that Washington made last summer, August 2020. I know it was an odd training camp, COVID-19 pandemic, etc., but clearly, and we know this now, and Ron Rivera has admitted that he made this mistake, we should have had an open competition, Dwayne Haskins versus Kyle Allen. And this, to me, is kind of where I start with the Fitzpatrick acquisition. I'm not against this in theory, but there are two things that stand out to me as they better be the case or else I will have a problem with this. And number one is what I just got into. I don't want Ryan Fitzpatrick being handed a starting job. If he earns it, if he beats out Heineke and Allen, then more power to Fitzmagic. But I don't want this to be like, well, you know, Heineke, come on, really? Or Kyle Allen, you know, come on, really? Like, no. I want this to be an open competition, and let's see who ends up emerging as the best man for the job. There's another bigger picture thing, though, with this acquisition of Ryan Fitzpatrick, and that is this, and you have heard me say this. I want Washington going younger. I want Washington going with guys who possess upside. I'm not a believer in, you have to find somebody this offseason because we have to go 9-7 and seven or better in 2021. You don't have to do anything. You've got to build this thing up the right way. The tone that Ron Rivera struck, and I praised Ron big time for the tone that he struck, and the tone very simply was, we're going to build this thing the right way. We're not going to be seduced. We're not going to be conned by having won an ultra-weak NFC East with a 7-9 record, i.e., we don't all of a sudden shift into win-now mode and we have to sacrifice the long-term for the short-term because, golly gee, we've got to get back into the postseason in 2021. You want to be back in the postseason in 2021. You want to do well. You want to win games, but you're not going to do things here that sacrifice the long-term for the short-term. This is not just about 2021. I'm going to keep saying this. This is about 2021, 22, 23, and beyond. Obviously, signing a guy in Ryan Fitzpatrick going into his age 39 season, that's not a long-term play. That's not something you do when you're trying to build something up to be really good a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, etc. right? He's not a long-term fix. He's not a franchise quarterback. He's a classic stopgap measure. He's a classic tread water for a season or two, 
type quarterback. But if Ron Rivera and Marty Herney and Martin Mayhew and Scott Turner and everyone else looked at the available quarterbacks this offseason, either via free agency or trade, look at the upcoming NFL draft where Washington is picking in the first round, number 19 overall, what is likely to be available to Washington at number 19 or close enough to number 19. And Washington doesn't like any of these other options, like just doesn't like the other quarterbacks available realistically this offseason. So we'll put aside like Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, doesn't like the quarterbacks likely to realistically be available to Washington with that number 19 overall pick. So I, I mean, everybody loves Trevor Lawrence, probably uh, most people like Zach Wilson at this point, but you know, maybe Washington just doesn't really feel it with, you know, a Trey Lance or a Mac Jones or a Kyle Trask or whoever else. And Washington's like, no, we're not going to overextend ourselves. We're not going to force ourselves to fall in love with someone who we're not in love with. Then yeah, I don't have a problem with going with Ryan Fitzpatrick as again, a part of your quarterback mix. I don't want him as the predestined starter. If he's going to be your week one QB1, I want him to earn it. I want him to beat out both Heineke and Allen. But Ron and company better be right on this, okay? Like, I can't emphasize that enough. If you're picking at 19 and you're saying to yourself, we don't like Trey Lance, we don't like Kyle Trask, we don't like Mac Jones, we don't like any of these realistically available quarterbacks in the first round, you better end up being right on this to where you know, you could have traded up, say, a few spots to get a Trey Lance, or, you know, Mac Jones falls to you at 19, and you pass on him. You better be right on that, that Jones doesn't end up becoming a really good quarterback, or Lance doesn't end up killing it as a dual-threat quarterback, and that punting on getting a potential quarterback of the future this offseason was the right way to go. I mean, again, with, with, with the veteran quarterbacks realistically available, you know, if you say to yourself, I don't really like Sam Darnold, I don't really like Marcus Mariota, and I for sure I'm not willing to give up assets to get any of those guys. Because remember, you got to trade for Bradford, and at least as of now, you got to trade for Mariota. Then yeah, Fitzpatrick to me is just fine. Again, though, I go back to this thing of you better be right, okay? It better not be that instead of spending $10 million on Ryan Fitzpatrick this offseason as he goes into his age 39 season, you could have just taken Trey Lance or taken Mac Jones or traded up a spot or two to take Lance or Jones or somebody like that. And that guy ends up killing it for another team. I think what is especially exciting about Ryan Fitzpatrick is this. Yes, he's older. All right. And he's been around forever. Ryan Fitzpatrick, understand, came into the NFL as a seventh round pick of the St. Louis Rams in 2005. The team that drafted him isn't even in the same city anymore, okay? The Rams, of course, long gone from St. Louis. So that's how long this guy's been around. 15 plus years ago, Ryan Ryan Fitzpatrick was drafted into the NFL. You know, we have Zdeno Chara, the oldest player in the NHL on the Capitals. You've got the ancient Ryan Fitzpatrick now uh, coming to the Washington football team. Deal obviously is not official, but we all know it's going to end up happening. But here's the thing with Fitzpatrick that does get you excited about what he could be should he be the QB1 in 2021? He has demonstrated an ability to play at a high level in recent seasons. You know, this is not a deal with a guy who, you know, you're trying to recapture something that happened 10 years ago. He quantifiably has been one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL over the last three years with people, you know, constantly kind of just writing him off or dismissing him or saying, all right, whatever, Fitzpatrick, he's been around forever. Like, no, he has continued to produce 
at a high level. Do you know that Ryan Fitzpatrick, this past regular season, the 2020 regular season, was fifth among 33 qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR, a 76.9 total QBR. Total QBR is on a scale of zero to 100. It is, as I like to say, the best one-stop shop when it comes to analyzing quarterback play. No stat is perfect, but this is by far the best of the stats that are out there because it incorporates not just what you do, but when you do what you do, against whom you do what you do, and QBR factors in things like rushing plays for quarterbacks and taking sacks. Ryan Fitzpatrick was the fifth best quarterback in the NFL this past regular season for total QBR. Among those who Fitzpatrick ranked ahead of, take a listen to this list, Drew Brees, Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, Deshaun Watson, Justin Herbert, Kyler Murray, and Matthew Stafford. You know, it's interesting. When I, when I saw the Stafford name, it really struck me. It's not unreasonable to suggest that you'll actually get better play from Fitzpatrick in 2021 than the Rams will get from Stafford in 2021. And I say that as someone who endorsed Washington trying to trade for Stafford, you know, give up an asset or two to get Matthew Stafford. I was on board with that. Washington was too, right? Washington, as best as we can tell from the reporting, offered at least a first round pick and a third round pick for Stafford and may have included a player in that package. But, you know, knowing what we know about Stafford and kind of, you know, the body breaking down a bit and seeing what we have seen from Fitzpatrick in recent years, I don't think it's ridiculous to suggest that Fitzpatrick could actually end up having a better year than Stafford. Now, I think Stafford's going to do well with Sean McVay, but like, if you look at the numbers, Fitzpatrick has actually been right at Stafford's level, if not better in recent seasons. And it's not just a last season thing, because, you know, any quarterback for one year can capture lightning in a bottle. 2020 Fitzpatrick, like I said, fifth in the NFL in total QBR. 2019 Fitzpatrick was eighth among 30 qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR at 68.3. So Fitzpatrick has been top 10 in the NFL in total QBR each of the last two seasons. How many people are aware of that? He's been a top 10 quarterback the last two years. And how about what happened in 2018? Now, he didn't qualify for the QBR rankings in 2018, but Ryan Fitzpatrick did finish the 2018 regular season number one in the NFL in yards per pass attempt at 9.6. So the last two years, he's top 10 in the NFL in total QBR. 2018, he was number one in the NFL in yards per pass attempt. And you may remember the specifics for Fitzpatrick in that 2018 season. That was uh, with him with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He was throwing bombs early that season to Deshaun Jackson. It was one bomb after another. It was one of the more remarkable things we were seeing early in that 2018 season, the extent to which Fitzpatrick and old DJX were connecting on the deep ball. In fact, take a listen to the numbers that Fitzpatrick was putting up early in that 2018 season. Because I remember tracking this. I was like, wow, this is incredible. This guy's just chucking it all over the place for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Week one that season, a 48-40 shootout win at the New Orleans Saints. Fitzpatrick, 21-28 for 417 yards, four touchdowns, no picks. He averaged 14.9 yards per pass attempt, Fitzpatrick did, week one of 2018. The next game, 27-21 home win over the Philadelphia Eagles. Fitzmagic in that game, 27-33 for 402 yards, four touchdown passes, and one pick. The guy had eight touchdown passes, over his first two games in 2018. In fact, he had 11 touchdown passes over his first three games in 2018. He threw for more than 400 yards in each of his first three games 
in 2018. And that's another thing with Fitzpatrick. And I think this may have been as appealing as maybe anything for the Washington football team with Ryan Fitzpatrick. He plays quarterback in a much different way versus what we've become accustomed to seeing here with Washington in recent years. So the NFL now has this thing, next-gen stats, that tracks all kind of advanced stuff when it comes to NFL players. And one of the great things in next-gen stats is air yards, right? Air yards is the idea of how much are you throwing the football beyond the line of scrimmage. So you measure air yards, again, line of scrimmage to your intended target or the guy who ends up catching the pass. So in other words, you try to differentiate between the guy who's a dinker and a dunker versus the a guy who aggressively attacks the sticks, you know, because there's a big difference, obviously, between throwing the ball three yards to a running back and the running back runs 70 yards versus you dropping back, throwing the ball 50 yards downfield and the receiver catches the ball in a go route and ends up having a 70 yard reception, right? There's a huge difference there. And yet statistically for years, those two things very different have been accounted for in the exact same way. It's never made a lot of sense. So thankfully now the NFL is smartened up to this and is trying to differentiate from this stuff. So NFL's next-gen stats has a stat called average completed air yards, which is simply the average number of air yards you have on your completions. The quarterbacks in the 2020 regular season with the two lowest average completed air yards were, yes, Alex Smith and Dwayne Haskins, okay? I am not making this up. Alex Smith was next to last, 3.8 average completed air yards. Dwayne Haskins was dead last at 3.6. Ryan Fitzpatrick in 2020, number 13 in the NFL in average completed air yards at 6.5. Ryan Fitzpatrick in the 2019 regular season, number five in the NFL in average completed air yards at 7.1. Ryan Fitzpatrick in the 2018 regular season, number one in the NFL in average completed air yards at 8.8. So, you know, you think about what could be if Fitzpatrick ends up as the Washington QB1. And again, I don't want him handed anything. I don't want anything predetermined. I don't want Taylor Heineke being written off. I don't want Kyle Allen being written off. But if Fitzpatrick ends up as Washington's starting quarterback, he's going to be able to play the position in a way that we just have not seen in these parts for a very, very long time. Ryan Fitzpatrick plays the quarterback position in a very modern way from a standpoint of his throwing. Now, he's not a dual threat the way so many of the great modern quarterbacks are. That is true. That is true. Uh, I mean, it's not like he's completely immobile, but, you know, he's not a dual threat guy like, obviously, a Deshaun Watson, a Russell Wilson, a Taylor Heineke, people like that. But Fitzpatrick is a chucker. He throws the football downfield. Washington has been, like, impotent for years when it comes to the explosive play. Fitzpatrick can really help to change that. You think about what Ryan Fitzpatrick could mean for a guy like Terry McLaurin. You know, McLaurin had to do so much of his production in 2020 via yards after catch. And it's a credit to Terry that he was able to do that. But that's not the way it should be, or at least that it has to be for a guy like McLaurin, a true number one receiver, a burner. Remember, McLaurin's a fast guy. Uh, Let that speed be exploited more. Take advantage of that speed more. You can do that if Fitzpatrick ends up as your starter. And then there's another thing with Fitzpatrick, and I don't think you can minimize this either, and that is that he is beloved. Uh, people rave about Ryan Fitzpatrick. You know, we know Ron Rivera is very big on leadership and maturity and work ethic and that kind of a thing. You know, nothing I think captures Ryan Fitzpatrick, the guy, the teammate better than what happened with him on the Miami Dolphins in 2020. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick was very upfront and very honest and 
you know, very uh, self-aware about his situation. He, he called himself a placeholder for Tua Tungavailoa. I mean, what everyone knew was the case, he was willing to say, yeah, I know what I'm here for. You know, Dolphins spend that number five overall pick in the 2020 draft on Tua. Fitzpatrick is still with the team. Fitzpatrick starts the season as a starter, has the Dolphins at three and three, and then gets benched in favor of Tua. And Fitzpatrick wasn't happy about it, but he also wasn't like a whiner or a complainer. You know, he was a good teammate and he actually ended up starting for the Dolphins uh, later in the season because Tua really wasn't that good and actually got banged up a bit uh, in that rookie year. But like, you know, you, you can look up some of the things that have been said about Fitzpatrick and it, it is similar to a lot of what we heard and read regarding how people spoke of Alex Smith. The Dolphins tight end Mike Gesicki called Ryan Fitzpatrick, quote, the greatest teammate I've played with, end quote. So you're losing Alex Smith, yes, but you're gaining a guy with maybe as good of a reputation or close enough to as good of a reputation as Alex Smith possesses. And like I just outlined, Ryan plays the position in a much different way than Alex does. So I want competition. Like I said, I don't want anything predetermined. I don't want anyone anointed as anything. I want Ron and company to be open-minded about Heineke, about Allen, and may the best man win in a true, open, good faith, three-way battle for the quarterback spot come training camp. I also do say, you better be right on this. You know, presumably now this eliminates drafting a quarterback at number 19 overall, although I guess that is a conversation we can't have. What if they, what if they do take a quarterback with that first round pick? But if you have decided we're not in love with any of these realistically available quarterbacks in the draft, we don't like what else is available via free agency in the trade market, i.e. Sam Darnold, Marcus Mariota, etc. We're just going to go with Ryan Fitzpatrick, an obvious stopgap measure, an obvious tread the water type guy, and just kind of make it to next offseason and kind of reevaluate the position at that standpoint, at that point. Okay, fine, but you better be right here. It better not be that Darnold goes somewhere else and goes somewhere else and kills it. Mariota goes somewhere else and kills it. Kyle Trask, Mac Jones, Trey Lance get taken and end up blossoming. Like that to me is key here. You've got to make the right calls on these things. We'll see if Washington ended up doing that. But there's no doubt, Ryan Fitzpatrick will be a lot of fun, should he be the QB1. Ryan Fitzpatrick, if he's a starting quarterback, will play the position in a much more dynamic, explosive way than we've become accustomed to. And if you're asking me right now, you say, all right, if Fitzpatrick is the QB1, what are you looking at in terms of a 2021 record for the Washington football team? I don't think, you know, nine and seven, 10 and six is out of the question. I don't. Now you have to get the best of Fitzpatrick, or at least a, a good version of Fitzpatrick, He is a guy who can throw picks. You know, there's a reason he's bounced around the NFL as much as he has. But you look at what Ryan Fitzpatrick has done in his career. He has done things like gone 10 and 6, as he did with the New York Jets in 2015. You know, he went 4 and 3 with the Miami Dolphins in 2020. So, like, for those of you who want to get caught up in the record, like, he has proven himself to be capable of leading a team that is, if not a postseason team, because neither one of those teams made the postseason, 2015 Jets, 2020 Dolphins, but at least is in contention for a postseason spot. He can kind of hold up his end of the bargain, but he obviously isn't anything long-term. And that still is what Washington needs to find. And that's why Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen should not be dismissed. They should be very much a part of this mix and may the best man win. All right, so the Ryan Fitzpatrick news late on Monday night was the headliner for the Washington football team on day one of the NFL's legal tampering period. But the Fitzmagic news, not the only news for Washington on day one of the legal tampering period. We had two defections for Washington 
per multiple reports on Monday. Unrestricted free agent corner Ronald Darby gone, agreeing on a contract with the Denver Broncos. And unrestricted free agent linebacker Kevin Pierre-Lewis gone, agreeing on a contract with the Houston Texans. The Darby defection is obviously the bigger of the two. We got a big money deal from Denver, reported three-year, $30 million contract with $19.5 million guaranteed. This is not a complete shocker. This was not an ultra-deep free agent cornerback market. Uh, ben Standing, Washington football team insider for the Athletic DC, week ago today reported that several teams were legit eyeing Darby per sources, but also that Washington had hoped to resign Darby. I had hoped that Washington would resign Darby. He had an excellent 2020 season, especially given what he had been. Washington signed him last April 1st to a one-year $3 million contract. Darby started all 16 games for Washington in the 2020 regular season, led Washington in the regular season in defensive snaps at 95.9%. Nobody played more for Washington on defense in 2020 than Darby did. And this, of course, was a Washington defense that was so much improved from what we saw in 2019. Washington finished the 2020 regular season second in the NFL in pass defense for football outsiders, DVOA metrics. So nobody played more on the number two pass defense in the NFL last season than Ronald Darby did. Like that's saying something about the year that he had. He actually had a better overall grade for pro football focus than Kendall Fuller did. Uh, Darby was at 76.0, Fuller at 67. Point two. But with Ronald Darby, this 2020 performance by him was, you could argue, the best he's ever been. Certainly, it was the best he had been in a while, and it was the healthiest he had been in a long while. Ronald Darby came to Washington off having played for the Philadelphia Eagles for the previous three years, 2017 through 2019. With the Eagles, Darby played in just 28 of a possible 48 regular season games, and Darby was not good in 2019. Going back to pro football focus, Darby over 11 games for the Eagles in 2019, a coverage grade of 41.0, which ranked 127th out of 130 qualifying corners. Now, Washington did a very shrewd thing. Signed him to a low money, prove it contract last offseason, one year, $3 million. He ended up outperforming that contract big time. And now Washington lets him leave for greener pastures, bigger money elsewhere. And I have to say this, and I tweeted this as soon as the Darby news came out. This is actually how smart NFL teams do free agency. You sign guys to contracts that those guys outperform. You get more production per dollar. And then you let the guy get overpaid by somebody else. And you get a comp pick for the guy. That's the way to do free agency. That's the way the smart teams do free agency. It's the way the New England Patriots have done free agency. In a lot of ways, it's the way the Baltimore Ravens have done free agency. Those two teams have played the comp pick game so well over the years. Now, with Darby, you know, him leaving for this three-year, $30 million deal, if Washington signs a big money receiver or signs a big money tight end, then that's going to cancel out this Darby contract in terms of the comp pick formula because it really doesn't profile to be any other major big money free agent defection here for Washington. And, you know, Kevin Pierre-Lewis got a two-year 
deal worth a maximum of $8 million from the Texans per report. So, you know, that, that that's not doing much for you in the comp pick game. So I, I'll grant you that, like, Darby leaving probably isn't going to result in a compensatory pick because we still do anticipate Washington signing a big money receiver or tight end. And, of course, Washington has just spent $10 million on a one-year contract for Ryan Fitzpatrick. But the basic principle remains. This is how you do free agency. You sign a guy on the cheap. You sign a guy to a bargain contract, but a guy with upside, a guy who you think could really do well with you. The guy does do well with you. He outperforms his contract with you. And then you say, okay, say la vie. Go get paid by somebody else. We're not going to pay you the big money because, you know, while we like you and we appreciate what you did, you know, we also do have to be mindful of there's an overall body of work here. There's an overall resume here that does suggest, eh, I don't know, uh, you may uh, be better off here getting out while the getting's still good as opposed to pouring, pumping in a bunch of big money into someone who, like I said, had a bad 2019 and had had a really hard time staying healthy each of the previous three years. Now, look, maybe Darby goes to Denver and he's figured some things out physically, and he stays healthy, and he continues to kill it. That is a possibility. That is a risk. And in this past happy NFL, you need cornerback depth, and Washington now is lacking in cornerback depth. There's no doubt about that, right? Your top two corners for the moment are Kendall Fuller and Jimmy Moreland. You got to add, and you got to add big time to your cornerback inventory. But this is a free agent market that, while it is not ultra deep in terms of standout corners, does have a bunch of guys with connections to Washington's defensive backs coach, Chris Harris. So I would certainly be anticipating Washington signing one or more of those types in free agency, uh, if not in the coming days and at some point here as time progresses. You can obviously address corner in the draft. And truth be told, when it comes to defense, and I know Ron Rivera is a big believer in this, it's about your front more than it is about your back end. And that's not to say your back end doesn't matter because it does. But Ron Rivera's defenses have a history of getting cornerbacks paid. Josh Norman, James Bradbury, now Ronald Darby. You know, the philosophy has basically been, yes, we want talent on the back end. Like, you can't sit here and say cornerback doesn't matter. It does matter. It always matters. But what matters the most is rushing the passer, being stout up front, creating chaos, forcing quarterbacks to throw under duress, under pressure. That's going to do you as well as anything when it comes to doing good pass defense. And so to me, I look at Darby and I say, it would have been nice to have him back. Yes. But three years, $30 million, $19.5 million guaranteed for a guy who, again, previous three years going into 2020 had played in a mere 28 of a possible 48 regular season games. And I talked about this on Monday's podcast. One of the things that really got Washington in trouble was paying too much to too many who provided too little and were available too infrequently, right? Jordan Reed, Chris Thompson, Alex Smith, Brandon Sheriff maybe possibly is going to end up uh, proving to be another example that, you know, you didn't want to just dive headfirst back into doing that here, giving a big money contract to a guy in Darby with a very clear history of not being available. So I get it with Darby. I'm not thrilled that he's gone. But I understand it. And like I said, big picture, like from a macro standpoint, this is how you do a free agency. Sign a guy on the cheap, sign a guy to a bargain deal. The guy outperforms that contract because you brought the guy in knowing that he has some upside and you let somebody else pay him and you get a comp pick for the guy. Like I said, you're probably not going to get a comp pick for Darby, but that's not the point. This to me is how you do free agency. And then when it comes to Kevin Pierre-Lewis, I mean, look, we know Ron Rivera was not happy with his linebacker play for so much of 2020. Kevin Pierre-Lewis was a darling going into the season of both Ron Rivera 
and Jack Del Rio. That was one of the interesting things about the spring and summer of 2020, the extent to which Pierre Lewis received praise from both Ron and Jack. And Kevin Pierre-Lewis, I mean, Washington got mileage out of him last year. He played in 13 games in the regular season. Uh, did miss time toward the end of the year. Missed the final three games of the regular season due to a high ankle sprain. And, you know, Pierre-Lewis was up and down. Like, there were games where you saw his speed and you understood why Ron and Jack had spoken so highly of him. But there also were games where you watched him and also John Bostic and you were like, boy, linebacker is a real problem here. You know, Kevin Pierre-Lewis was a fourth round pick of the Seattle Seahawks in the 2014 draft out of Boston College. Washington in 2020 was KPL's fifth team in five seasons. There was a reason for that. KPL came to Washington having started just four of his 71 career regular season games and having mostly been a special teams player. There was a reason for that. So I was not against Kevin Pierre-Lewis being brought back, but I wanted him back as a backup. I did not want him back as a starter. You need to do better at two of your three linebacker spots in 2020. You know, Bostic is under contract for next season. I want him back as a backup. I want Washington getting two starting caliber linebackers, either via free agency or the trade market or the draft. Put those guys with Cole Holcomb. And to me, now you're cooking with some gas at the linebacker spot. But Bostic, to me, on a good defense is a backup and linebacker, not a starter. And the same thing is true for Kevin Pierre-Lewis. So he's reportedly going to the Houston Texans, two-year contract, like I said, with a maximum value of $8 million. Good luck to KPL. One of the early major items on day one of the NFL's legal tampering period was the New England Patriots, who ended up being major player players on day one of the tampering period, getting Janu Smith, a guy who I had advocated for Washington to get, ends up going to Bill Belichick and the Pats. The Tennessee Titans unrestricted free agent tight end John Smith agreeing on the contract with New England. It is a big money deal, no doubt a reported four-year $50 million contract with $31.25 million guaranteed. Works out to an average annual value in AV of $12.5 million. That puts John number three among tight ends at the moment in terms of AAV. Like I said, I advocated for Jonu Smith. You know, all this talk about Hunter Henry. To me, Jonu Smith was always the better play. Younger, far more durable, had demonstrated season-by-season improvement, was a guy known for his strength and his willingness to block in the run game. There, to me, was a lot to like about Jonu Smith, and I think that uh, liking of him was affirmed by the fact that the great Belichick brought Jonu Smith and brings him on board very early on tampering period day number one. Like when Belichick goes hard after you, you know you've done something right. And John o. Smith to me has been doing things right for the Tennessee Titans over these last few years. So John o. Smith is off the market. I don't know whether Washington was in on him or not. You know, we did not have a lot in the way of Washington is talking with this guy. Washington is wanting that guy on Monday. The leaks really have been shut down, haven't they? Isn't that interesting, by the way? You know, I talked about this recently. Ron Rivera, the godfather, Don Ron, the baptism of fire and what's been going on behind the scenes, eliminating all these longtime Bruce Allen people, all these people who'd been in the organization for years. And interestingly, perhaps it's coincidental, but maybe not. You're not hearing anything be leaked out right now. Uh, it's been pretty tight. It's been pretty hush-hush. You know, there are some things here and there. I'll grant you that. But by and large, like you just were not hearing a ton yesterday when it came to the Washington football team. But anyway, Jonu Smith off the market. I was disappointed by that. Uh, I, I'd love to know whether Washington truly went after him or not. But of course, what is so notable about the tight end market right now is that the top of the market guy, Hunter Henry, remains out there. 
And this was, as much as anything, the trend of day one of the legal tampering period. In years past, day one of the legal tampering period is when so many of the big names come off the market. And yet here we are going into day two and Henry, you know, Kenny Galladay, Juju Smith-Schuster, Curtis Samuel, all these pass catchers who were talked about as potential Washington fits, potential Washington targets, they're all still out there. So that's why this thing of, you know, what's going on and why is Washington so slow to the trigger on day one of the tampering period and all this stuff. I was never panicking on Monday and nor should you have been panicking because it's not like all these guys were getting gobbled up. It's a slower moving market than normal, primarily because you have teams lacking in salary cap space with the cap having gone down for the upcoming season. And also because of the pandemic, teams having lost revenues, you know, you maybe have teams behaving a little more, shall we say, frugally or judiciously when it comes to their spending this offseason. Now, if the likes of Galladay and Samuel and Henry end up coming off the market and not going to Washington, then you can start to say, hey, what's going on here? I thought we needed pass catching help. Why aren't we getting any of these guys? But for now, they're still out there. And this works to me to Washington's benefit. The longer these guys are out there, the more likely those guys' prices are to come down and the more likely you can get yourself a bargain deal. You can sign a guy to a friendlier than normal contract from a team perspective, from a club perspective. That's always what you're trying to do when you're a football team, right? You're not just trying to get good players, but in a salary cap environment, you're trying to get guys at good prices, right? The the goal for every general manager or every head of football operations when it comes to free agency is you want to win the contract. You want to get more production out of the guy than you end up paying the guy. That's always what teams want to do. And I think if you do that more often than not, if you win more contracts than you lose, then you end up doing well. That's how good teams do it in the NFL, right? With Ronald Darby in 2020, Washington won that contract, got a lot more production than a one-year $3 million deal would suggest. With Logan Thomas, with J.D. McKissick, with Wes Schweitzer, with Cornelius Lucas, Washington won all of those free agent contracts in 2020. And that's a big part of why Washington ended up going 7-9. and I mean, I know it's not glorious, but it was a big-time improvement from 3-13 and in 2019 and winning the NFC East. So you are poised here, and we'll see how the market develops. It's, it's only one day in the tampering period, so like a lot could change on Tuesday. But you are poised here if you're Washington, especially with all this cap space, especially with, like I said on Monday, the ability to structure contracts in player-friendly ways in a manner in which so many other teams cannot because of their cap predicaments. you got a real opportunity here to exploit this market, a slow-moving market, perhaps a depressed market, and a market where you may have some guys starting to panic a bit. You know, it, it is a loaded market, especially at receiver. It is set to be a loaded 2021 draft at receiver. This is certainly starting to feel like a, a receiver offseason in which there is far more supply than there is demand. And if that's the case, the teams benefit and Washington can benefit big time. So we'll see, you know, Kenny Galladay can maybe be had at a bargain price. Curtis Samuel can maybe be had at a price we never thought even possible. Uh, going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. But to anyone who was like panicked of why isn't Washington signed this guy yet or that guy yet, let the market evolve. Let Don Ron and his capos do their thing. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you? Exactly, Don. Thank you. Big guest, Gary Williams, coming up in moments. But first, another win for the Capitals on Monday night. 
So we have on Tuesday night the game of the season so far for the Capitals. Home to Barry Trotz and the New York Islanders at seven. The Caps are second in the East Division at 40 points, two points behind the Islanders who have won nine consecutive games. Old Trotzy and his Isles refuse to lose right now. And so it is Caps Isles at Capital One Arena Tuesday night at seven o'clock. A battle of the top two teams in the East Division. Of course, a battle for the Caps against the team that did them dirty in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs in 2020. The playoff series that cost Todd Reardon his job. Win one for Todd for the Capitals on Tuesday night. Will they be saying that? Will Peter Laviolette give that speech in the locker room? Win one for Todd. Uh, I'm guessing that speech probably will not be made. But anyway, the Caps with this big game against the Islanders on Tuesday night got on Monday night exactly what you wanted. An easy, breezy win, a game that wasn't overly physical, wasn't overly taxing, a 6 nothing smashing at the Buffalo Sabres. Caps now 18-6-4. You know, you're 18-6-4 and and you're not first in your division. That just speaks to how well the Islanders have been playing here recently. Actually, the entire East Division has been on fire. Caps have won five straight. Islanders have won nine straight. The Pittsburgh Penguins, who are in third place, they've won six straight. I mean, this East Division, which we thought was loaded going into the season, has not disappointed from that standpoint. This is a very difficult division that the Caps find themselves in. And to their credit, the Capitals are doing a very good job. So it's a season best now, five-game winning streak for the Caps. Caps have scored at least five goals in each of the team's last four games now. And the Caps have continued to own the lowly Sabres this season. Caps now 5-0-1 against Buffalo this season. And how about this too? The Caps now are 5-0-0 without Tom Wilson during his seven-game suspension. That Tom Wilson suspension is almost over. And remember, he interestingly decided not to appeal it. So far, it's like, eh, all right, you're, you're without old Wilsey? Uh, no Tom? No problem. 5-0-0 without Wilson during this seven-game suspension. Uh, Caps were minus uh, Lars Eller again last night. Uh, he did not play due to a lower body injury that was suffered in the Caps' previous game, the 5-4 win at the Philadelphia Flyers on Saturday night. It's been an odd run here for Eller because he missed a game due to a family matter. Comes back, plays for just about 90 seconds on Saturday night before he gets hurt again, and now uh, he's back to missing time again. Did not play on Monday night. Caps were actually back to going with just 11 forwards and seven defensemen uh, on Monday night. This is essentially a third consecutive game in which the Caps did that because in the Eller return game, like I said, they only played for about 90 seconds. So you ended up playing that game basically 11 forwards, seven defensemen the entire way. So I- I've been harping on this. Have the Caps, they have this great record, but the process by which you are, are arriving at the record isn't necessarily the greatest. You know, the Caps, some of the underlying stats aren't overly favorable. It was interesting. This was kind of another one of those games on Monday night. Like you won six nothing and you actually lost the puck possession battle. Only the Caps could win a game six nothing and still lose the puck possession battle. But the Caps, per natural stat trick, 43 five on five shot attempts to the Sabres 48, including just five high danger five on five shot attempts to the Sabres 11. Now, a lot of this had to do with what happened in the third period because the Caps actually controlled five on five play over the first two periods. But in the third period, the Caps just eight five-on-five shot attempts to the Sabres 24. The Caps in the third period got tripled up in terms of five-on-five shot attempts per natural stat trick. And we've been seeing this a lot in these games here lately with the Caps. Yes, they win, but like they'll get walloped in the puck possession battle. They'll blow a significant lead or come close to blowing a significant lead. That was a good thing about Monday night. You know, you were up on them and you, you, you know, you stepped on the throat. Like you never let the Sabres truly 
get into that game once you establish the lead. I mean, 6 nothing is a dominant victory, but I, I do worry a bit about this. With the Caps game in and game out, they just they don't win the puck possession battle. And over the long haul, that can normally end up hurting, hurting you. And it, it's not just that, too. It's that you give up a lot of high-danger chances versus what you generate. Like I said, on Monday nights, it's five high-danger, five-on-five shot attempts to the Sabres 11. You go back to that 5-4 win at the Flyers on Saturday night, the Caps in that game, per natural stat trick, just four five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Flyers' eight. You go back to what happened a week ago tonight. The Capitals, a 5-4 overtime win over the New Jersey Devils at Capital One Arena. The Caps in that game, just 24 five-on-five shot attempts per natural stat trick to 40 for the Flyers. Just one high-danger five-on-five shot attempt to four for the Flyers. So it's hard to keep winning when you keep playing the game like that, but the Caps are winning. And so for now, you know, you don't want to complain too much. Vitek Vanacek pitching a shutout on Monday night. Boy, did he need this. He was a Caps starting goaltender for the first time in three games, stopped all 23 shots that he faced, including all seven of the high danger shots that he faced per natural stat trick. And like I said, I mean, he got tested in the third period with the way the game went over the first two periods. Vitek faced just nine shots on goal, but then in the third period, he had to stop 14 shots on goal. And to his credit, he did that. And like I said, he needed this. Uh, Vanacek, who overall has done a good job this season, especially with the extent to which the Caps have leaned on him, uh, he had not looked good over his previous two outings. You go back to a couple of Friday nights ago, the 5-1 loss at the Boston Bruins. Vanacek got pulled in the second period, stopped just 14 of 18 shots. And then his next outing, that 5-4 overtime win over the Devils a week ago tonight. Vanacek in that game stopped just 27 of 31 shots, including just 13 of 16 shots in the third period. So Vitek good on Monday night. Going to be very interesting to see who Peter Laviolette starts in net on Tuesday night against the Islanders. It's obviously the second game of a back-to-back. That would normally mean Ilya Samsonov, i.e., you know, normally you go with your backup on the second game of back-to-back. But in a huge spot like this, who do you trust the most? You know, I think what happens on Tuesday night in terms of who the starting goaltender is is going to be very telling regarding who Peter Laviolette truly views as the Capitals' number one goaltender right now. In terms of the scoring, right, you win 6 nothing. Caps get six even-strength goals from six different players on Monday night. Twelve Caps each had at least one point. And among those Caps was the great eight. Alex Ovechkin, he scored the last Caps goal uh, also continued to have an overall very good game. Game high six shot attempts was number three was Ovechkin on the Caps and five on five shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick. The OV goal, even strength goal, 16-21 into the third period for a 6 nothing Caps lead. Connor Sheary getting the puck in the Caps offensive zone at the right point off a turnover by the Sabres. And then while deep in the right circle, passing the puck up to Ovi in the slot and Ovechkin depositing the puck past the Sabres goaltender Carter Hutton who had Richard Ponick right in front of him. And for Ovechkin, this is another milestone goal, career regular season goal number 717, tying him with Phil Esposito for number six in NHL history. The goal also moved Ovechkin to within one point to becoming just the 35th player in NHL history with 1,300 career regular season points. Like I said, this was an easy, breezy, feel-good kind of night overall for the Caps. Uh, I mentioned Sheary. He had two assists, was second on the Caps, and five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game for natural stat trick. Good game for the defenseman Justin Schultz. Two primary assists. He was first on the caps and five on five shot attempt percentage for the game for natural stat trick. And he finished the game with a game best plus minus rating of plus four. Caps continue to win. They need to keep winning in what is a brutal East Division. 
And Tuesday night, game of the season so far, Caps Isles, Laviolette versus Trotsy at Capital One Arena. It is a great time of year in sports, and of course, a big reason for that, college basketball. March Madness, right? The NCAA tournament beginning on Thursday with the four first four games. Then we have the first round on Friday and Saturday, and it is on Saturday night, beginning at 7-10, that we have 10-seeded Maryland versus 7-seeded UConn. And who better to talk about that than the man who joins me now? A member of both the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame and the College Basketball Hall of Fame. Because why make one Hall of Fame when you can make two? He is the winningest coach in Maryland basketball history. He is the host of his own podcast, the DC Coaches Basketball Podcast. Gary Williams is on the Al Galdi Podcast. Coach, it is great to talk to you. How are you? Yeah, good, Al. Glad hearing you. You always uh, enjoy your show. I appreciate that very much. So Maryland-UConn in the first round, Terrapins and the Huskies, kind of a first blush look from your standpoint. What do you make of the matchup? Yeah, I kind of like it. Um, you know, they're, they're going to play it at Purdue. So Maryland's, you know, comfortable with that venue. They've been there before. A lot of those guys have been there before. And uh, the other thing is very similar um, type teams, good defensive teams, when Maryland's shooting the ball well, I think they can play with anybody. Their, their problem has been the the periods in games where the ball just doesn't go in the basket. Uh, and if they can stay away from that, I think they really have a good chance. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. I mean, that would be the concern. That would be kind of the potential fatal flaw for this Maryland team, the offense, these lengthy scoring droughts. What do you think goes into those? What, if anything, can be done to avoid those? Well, Maryland's really good in terms of what they can do with each player. I I think they're all like between 6'5 and 6'7, and they all can post up, they all can dribble penetrate. When they forget those two things and rely on that three-point shot, that's where they get in trouble because that's not their strength. Their their strength is their ability. Like if I'm a point guard, um, I can post up the other team's point guard, and and that's, that's the strength now in college basketball. Uh, the way the game's called, especially. And the same thing with dribble penetration. All those guys can get to the rim and above the rim. It's not like they don't have the athletic ability to do that. So even against zones nowadays, you, you, you can do that. They, they, you know, they screen zones and all that stuff now. So I think it's a great opportunity for Maryland. They, they just have to stay with what they're good at. Of course, the strength for Maryland for so much of the season has been the defense. It's maybe been Mark Turgeon's best defensive team. You have the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year and Daryl Morsell. You're a guy who appreciates defense. You coached up a lot of great Maryland defenses. What do you appreciate in particular about this Terrapins team defensively? I think they're all willing to play it. And I know that sounds funny, but a lot of times, especially if you get a guy that's a pretty good scorer, you know, they don't exactly hang their uh, hat on, on playing great defense, but I think Marcel leads the, the pack. He's not just defensive player of the year in the Big uh, Ten, but also a leader on that team. He's been around a while, and if he goes hard on defense, it's a little hard to be out there and not you do the same thing. And I, I think w- when Maryland has all five guys really going after it, they're really tough to score on. The, the one problem Maryland has had is when they, you have that big guy, and Maryland does not have that player. So when the ball goes inside, when Maryland double teams, I think the key to their defense then becomes their ability to get out of the double when the ball's kicked out and get matched up again. And if they can do that, then they can play with anybody. Who was the best defensive player you ever coached at Maryland? Uh, I'll tell you, they, 
there, there's quite a few of them. Um, Johnny Rhodes, who I think is still leads the ACC in steals, he anticipated really well. Uh, he, he was great at reading what a team is trying to do and getting that pass removed from the first pass. He, he just gets steals, and he was great, and we pressed a lot back then. And then um, Juan Dixon was a very good defensive player. Knowing Juan pretty well, I think he played defense because he knew if he got the ball, he could shoot. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So that was that was why he played good defense. And you know, a guy like Steve Blake was really solid. He, he, it didn't show up in numbers, but he was always where he, he was supposed to be on defense, and, that, and that's really important. Then, of course, uh, you get a couple shot blockers like Chris Wilcox and uh, Joe Smith, people like that that uh, just have that ability to time everything and that doesn't come with a lot of players a lot of very good players don't have the timing that those two guys did looking at the Maryland season overall it's been such an interesting season you know an up and down season this was a team that was one and five in the Big Ten at one point and as the season has gone on the team has gotten better you know Mark Turgeon has done the thing that you did so often which is he's figured it out like he's found kind of the best version of this team this season and kind of gone that way. I wonder if you could just kind of speak to that because, like I said, I mean, it's something you did a lot where it's like maybe you're not at your best in November, December, but by the time you get to March, you're playing overall well. You know, you've kind of figured out exactly who you are, what you're good at, what maybe you're not great at, and you end up being the best version of yourself late in the season. Yeah, for myself, that that was my goal as, as a coach was to try to get better all year. And part of that is finding out, uh, you know, who who plays the best together. In other words, that, that's a big part of any team. You might have a guy that's a seventh man, but you put him in a starting lineup and the team plays better. And you, you don't exactly know why, but it just – and a lot, a lot of that is players like guys. You know, players like certain guys to play with and don't like guys to play with, and that's not always – your best five guys. And as a coach, you have to keep that in mind, I think. And I, I think Mark has done a great job this year of going with what he had to do to, as you said, to make that team the best team. And, you know, they're, they're really good defensively. And I, I think against a team like Connecticut in the NCAA tournament, they definitely have a chance, you know. And, you know, seating is one thing, but seating only lasts until the brackets come out. And then as you start looking, you know, like how good was the Big East this year? You know, from top to bottom, you know, compared to the Big Ten. So even though Connecticut finished higher in their league than Maryland did in their league, you know, I'm I'm certain Maryland would have done very well in the Big East this year. So it's 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 funny once everything's settled and play begins, then we really find out. Do you think the COVID-19 induced aspect of this tournament, you know, so few people being in the gym for the game, all the games being in Indiana, you know, it's that unusual schedule this year where the first round doesn't start till Friday. Do you think that has any bearing on the actual basketball that we see played? Or do you think once the games start, these guys are just playing basketball and they're really not impacted by any of this stuff? I'll tell you one thing that I, I always thought had some impact. If, if you were, um, say, the afternoon doubleheader, a uh, first round of the NCAA tournament, all the fans are excited, everybody thinks they're going to win, all that type of thing is there. All of a sudden, in the first game, uh, where maybe the favorite falls behind the big underdog, and the crowd's there, they don't really care who wins that game because they're for, from the other two schools. But they immediately get behind that underdog, and it's, it sounds like a home gym 
when when the underdog scores and things like that. And I've seen it affect games, but the, the, the biggest thing is I'd rather have that, though, even if I was the favorite, than having a half-empty gym because that happens, too, in the NCAA tournament. I think the players are used to not people being there or many people being there at all. And so that's not going to be a factor by now. Uh, but I, I think we'll all miss the intensity of the crowds in the NCAA tournament this year. But I'm just glad that, you know, the players get a chance to play, the coaches uh, get a chance to coach because it's been lousy, you know, in terms of testing, 7 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, three, four times a week, all that stuff has been going on. Players have been basically isolated. The only thing unfair this year is some some teams have gotten to practice more than other teams. Some teams have had a shutdown for a week, two weeks. Michigan State's a good example of that. And, you know, it's going to be interesting how that plays out in the NCAA tournament, and hopefully there's no more problems with the COVID. You know, that stopped with the conference tournaments, and we can go from there. Have you thought about, like, if you were still coaching, how you would have handled this, how, to, how it would have impacted you as a head coach? Yeah, I, I really probably wouldn't be real good in this situation because patience was never one of my uh, <laughs> strengths. And, you know, you're sitting around for two weeks, you know, and, and nobody's really sick anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just a, like a quarantine. And, and that's got to be, you know, a guy like Izzo, he's been in the business a long time. All of a sudden, they tell him they have to shut down Michigan. The state determined that they had to shut down. That wasn't a university thing or a team thing with Michigan. They just had to shut down because of what the state said. So it's got to be very frustrating. But, you know, it's the old story. Everybody's in the same boat. So you you have to, uh, you know, deal with it somehow. I, I just think that coaches, the players this year dealt with stuff that nobody ever had to deal with before. We know that seniors can come back for the following year. Do you think a lot of guys are going to take that offer, or do you think most guys, if they're done, they're done, and they'll be on with the rest of their lives? I would think uh, if a player thinks one more year in college will help him make money in basketball, then there's no reason not to come back. Uh, you know, I look at Marcel as a good example. Of that, In other words, defensive player of the year in the Big Ten, the best conference in the country this year, that's pretty good. Say he comes back with a better jump shot next year. He's going to be very appealing to a lot of professional teams because of his size, his strength. And nowadays, you don't really need a position in the NBA. You, you just be, you're a good player and, and that's it. So somebody like that, I think, could benefit, but it's going to be the NCAA has to increase the scholarship limits. It's uh, 12 right now. And they have to, they have to go to like 15 in case guys decide to uh, stay. And all of a sudden you got your guys that are already committed to come. And, you know, something's got to give there. So I was thinking about this with the first-round matchup being Maryland-UConn. You know better than anyone how the selection committee loves to put together games with storylines. Do you think the fact that Maryland-UConn had that epic game in 2002, do you think that's in any way impacted this decision of like, hey, you know, we can kind of rekindle something that was really special almost two decades ago? Or, or do you think something like that had no bearing on this matchup being made? Well, I in 2001, we went to the Final Four. We played uh, Georgia State with Lefter Dizel. We played George Mason, local school, and then we played Georgetown. <laughs> so yeah. the odds of that happening, you know, naturally, I, I don't think are strong. And I think it could, but it's been a long time ago. So uh, it's been 19 years. So I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but that was a great game. There's no doubt about it. That was probably as good a game 
as I was ever involved with in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I mean, I was I was looking at some of the details of that game today, and I mean, of course, it was an Elite Eight game, so it's like, you know, that's the year you win the national championship. It's not the Final Four game, it's not the national title game, but that might be the game that people most remember. That was a war, 90-82, you beat a UConn team that had a bunch of future pros, you know, Karan Butler, Emeka Okafor, Ben Gordon. I mean, like I said, it wasn't the title game, it wasn't even the Final Four game, but Am I wrong in saying that might have been like the best game or the most like high profile game or high level game you guys played in that national championship season? Oh yeah, I mean we we had, we had a pretty tough stretch. We went Kentucky, Connecticut, Kansas, Indiana. They had all won national championships, and obviously we had not. And so uh, I knew it was going to be tough. But that Connecticut game, I mean, we held uh, Karan Butler to twenty six in his second half. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and we were trying. We had Byron Mouton, who's a great defensive player. We, yeah. You know, six five, six six. We couldn't do anything with him, and you know, I had great players. We, we, you know, Steve Blake hit a big shot. Juan Dixon hit a big shot, and things like that happened. But in terms of quickness, I think there was eight NBA players, future NBA players, on the court at the same time in that game. So it was pretty wild. You don't see a lot of 90-82 final scores in today's college basketball. I mean, it's not unheard of, but you certainly don't see it with as much frequency as you did back then. Why do you think that is? Like, what are the main reasons for that? I think defenses uh, have gotten a little more sophisticated. You know, time goes by. You know, it's uh, the, the help on defense now, The uh, and the athletic ability gets better every decade. The athletic ability is better out there. And so all of a sudden some guy blocks a layup from behind. Well, you didn't see that much. You saw block shots, but, you know, like the LeBron-type block, you know, coming from way back to block a guy shooting a layup is, happens today in college basketball. The other thing is I think coaches are really uh, running a lot of offense. It takes a long time to get shots off and that's going to decrease the possession so you're not going to score as many points and uh you know the so all of a sudden you're shooting with five seconds left in the shot clock and that's not a real high percentage shot to me i always believed if you could get a good shot off in one pass why not you know it's you're probably in good position to get offensive rebounds things like that so uh it's just a different way to play the game and i think you look at the um you know the, the strong conferences this year. Conferences this year, there's a lot of controlled offenses like a Wisconsin or like in the Big Ten, for example, like Purdue in the Big Ten, uh, with how controlled their offense was. So uh, I think that's going on in a lot of places, uh, and uh, you know it's going to lower the scores. There's no doubt about it, but it's still good basketball. So I do have to ask you about what everyone was talking about coming out of the Maryland loss to Michigan in the Big Ten tournament quarters. What do you think about what happened between Mark Turgeon and Jawan Howard? Well, I just saw that the Big Ten's not going to do anything about it. They just said, "That's we, we have no comment. That's it. We're moving on. Uh, that can happen. And, you know, obviously, I coached in the Big East, the uh, Big Ten and the ACC, and it wasn't always pretty. You know? yeah. I mean, you, you, you get mad at the other guy, you get mad at you. And um, what we would do, and, you know, I guess things have changed. You would call each other the next day. One guy would call, the other guy would call, and he'd talk about it. You might yell at each other for the first five minutes of the call, but basically you work it out because, you know, you, you're in the same profession. You're, you're trying to win, and that that's the thing people have to understand. You know, I don't know what was said. Nothing was picked up on microphones or anything like that. So 
I'm not sure what was said, but, you know, th- those two guys, I know Juan Howard, and obviously I know Mark Turgeon. They're good people. You know, they're, they're good people. They got caught up in, in, a, in a very uh, tough situation there when both teams are trying to win and, you know, everything's on the line. And, and so that happened. And it's a shame it happened because people will judge a lot of things just on that one situation. And, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, that's behind everybody and go back playing. Did you ever come close to getting into a physical altercation with, you know, Shashevsky or Dean or anybody like that? Nah, not with Dean. Uh, <laughs> I, I, Dean was, he, he was the master, yeah. uh, psychologist on the sideline. You know, he'd do anything he could to, to win a game, which I, I really admired. Mike and I had our moments, but we never, you know, we're not, you know, we played against each other back, back in 1965. Oh, wow. The, uh, old Charlotte Invitational. He was at, and there had that Bob Knight at 25 years old was the head coach at Army then and, you know, we, I think the score was 51-50. We each went out, so, um, but no, you, you know, you, you, and, and there, there has been heat, but I, I never thought about, uh, you know, it, it never got to where that thing got to with, with Juwan Howard. I, I don't know what would cause to go that strong. You know, I have an idea, but I don't, I don't know, but you know, you, you get mad, but then you got to concentrate. You got to coach your team. I mean, in other words, Juwan Howard's got like a, a 12 point lead at that time. I don't want to do anything to get Maryland excited. I'm, I'm trying to win the game. And I was surprised, given his background with the pros all that time, he coached in the pros and things like that, to, to get kicked out of the game in that situation. Yeah, I mean, and he's 6'9", and Mark's 5'10". I mean, you know, <laughs> what what is that? Uh, that's, that's kind of like... You know, you gotta have weight divisions there. Yeah. Well Jeez. You know. Make it a fair fight, please. Help yeah. us out here. This is, that was crazy. Did you think the Big Ten should have, uh, punished Juwan? Cause, I mean, the fact that the Big Ten's doing nothing, I think, is kind of interesting. Especially, you know, it, it's been reported Maryland has said to the Big Ten, Juwan said, I'll effing kill you, detergent. You know, that's obviously not nothing. Yeah. I mean, make a statement. You know, it's okay. It's okay to, uh, say, hey, you know, Juwan, you were wrong. You know, you can't do that. If it happens again, you know, some, something else, you, you know, will go stronger than this. But it, I think a public recommend, reprimand is certainly, uh, not out, out of, cause it was so unusual. Yeah. You know, and like it came out of nowhere. In other words, I knew the background, you know, the two games prior and, you know, the, that type of thing. But once again, in, in a game situation, you, you, you can't, you know, he's got a good assistant. Juwan's got a good assistant in Phil Martelli. But at the same time, I want to coach the game. I, I mean, I'm 12 up. I want to get this thing over with and get to W. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I mean, you dealt with this for years in the ACC where, yeah, Maryland was in the ACC for decades, but you weren't a tobacco road school, so you didn't get the treatment that the Carolinas and the Dukes got. Do you think there's an element of that here where Michigan is, you know, that traditional Big Ten school, and so it's maybe going to get some preferential treatment over a newcomer like Maryland? Well, you know, I think there there is a tendency, especially for the the, the blue bloods in the Big Ten, to to really, you know, they're they might be glad, you know, because they expanded the league. That means you get more money from the TV contracts and all that. But at the same time, <clears throat> there's a lot of people connected to Big Ten that didn't like the expansion, just like people didn't like the ACC when they expanded uh, the way they did. So um, I think there there there's some things there, but. You know, time goes by and like almost every conference in the country, you know, changed, you know, in the last five or 10 years. And so, you know, to, to look at Maryland or look at Rutgers, say, for example, is, 
yeah, you know, we, we don't really like the fact you're in there. Well, you know, Maryland has won quite a few championships in the Olympic sports in the time they've been in there. And, you know, hopefully uh, Coach Lachley gets the football thing going. We're, we're really competitive in a very tough division of the Big Ten. And, you know, Mark tied for the championship last year in the Big Ten. So it's not like we go in there and we haven't uh, represented ourselves very well. Yes, and technically speaking, the last Big Ten team to win a national championship was Maryland in 2002. So we got that going for us. Yeah, I think it's 2000. They've been to the Final Four in the Big Ten, but they haven't gotten it. So, you know, there's a team like Illinois certainly is good enough. If Michigan has the injury now to a really good player, so I don't know, you know, what, what that's going to do to them. But, you know, they're, they're a good team. And Juwan Howard had them playing a very good style when they were healthy. So I don't know. You know, sometimes this time of year it's really hard to make up for a guy that gets hurt all of a sudden. No doubt. Well, Coach, it's great to hear you. Great to get your thoughts. Enjoy Maryland-UConn. Enjoy the NCAA tournament, and all the best to you. Thanks, Al. Appreciate it. Exciting time right now if you're a Maryland fan, certainly if you're a Georgetown fan. It is a rough go of it, though, these days, if you are like me and a lifelong Wizards slash Bullets fan. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Another loss for the Wizards on Monday night. They fall to 14-24, and a 133-122 loss to the Milwaukee Bucks at Capital One Arena. The Wizards' schedule has stiffened over the last few games here, and uh, not coincidentally, the Wizards be sinking. Wizards now have dropped six of seven. Wizards now tied with the Cleveland Cavaliers for the third worst record in the Eastern Conference. It was just like, what, a week or two ago, we were talking about, hey, the Wizards are within striking distance of the five spot in the East, you know, maybe the four spot in the East, that kind of a thing. They're now buried in the lowly Eastern Conference next to the Cleveland Cavaliers' third worst mark in the East. And the Wizards now four and a half games behind the 19 and 20 Atlanta Hawks for eighth in the East. Eighth in the East is occupied by a sub 500 team and you're four and a half games behind that team. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes. Thank you, Stephen A. Uh, this was another one of these games, this loss to the Bucks on Monday night in which the Wizards really just weren't in it. Uh, Wiz led by two points in the first quarter, then never led again the rest of the game. Wizards trailed by double digits for the entire third quarter. Uh, did trim a 19-point fourth-quarter deficit to five, but that was as close as the Wizards got in the second half. They got demolished for a second consecutive game by the Greek freak, Giannis Adetokounmpo, who was a monster in another Bucks win at the Wizards on Saturday night. Back at it on Monday night, the Greek freak one of two on threes, 11 of 17 on twos, a second straight triple-double for Giannis against the Wiz. 31 points, 15 rebounds, 10 assists versus three turnovers, and three steals. The Wizards got outscored by the Bucks in the paint on Monday night. 70-42. You got outscored by 28 points in the paint on Monday night. And of course, the freak had so much to do with that. You did get back Bradley Beal. He was back from a one-game absence due to rest. And, you know, he was good. He scored. Like, this is what Beal does. I give him a ton of credit. He's become such a great scorer. 4-7 on threes, 9-12 on twos, 7-7 on his free throws. He finished with 37 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists. Versus three turnovers in a lot of playing time. Bill was out there a bunch on Monday night. Played for 41 minutes, 45 seconds. Off again, not having played in the Wizards' previous game. Uh, Russell Westbrook, for the most part, was good. Three of six on threes, though just five of 13 on twos. But he finished with 23 points, 17 assists versus five turnovers 
and five rebounds. And Rui Hachimura was good for a second straight game. You know, we talked about Rui on Monday. He was so bad two games ago for the Wizards. That hideous 127-101 loss to the Philadelphia 76ers on Friday night at Capital One Arena. But Rui was good in the loss of the Bucks on Saturday night at Capital One. And Rui was good again on Monday night. Hachimura, 4-9 on threes, 22.7 rebounds, 5 assists versus two turnovers. Davies Bertans was back. He missed the previous game due to right calf tightness, you know, three of five on threes off the bench. This has been such a disappointing year to me for Bertans. I mean, not that he was awful on Monday night, but the Wizards just have not gotten nearly enough from him off re-signing him to that five-year, $80 million contract in the offseason. He was so much more impactful last season. Like, you know, I, I don't even care what the numbers say for this year. Bertans was such a factor last season, and he hasn't been close to being that factor this year. And this revamped starting lineup by Scott Brooks uh, was back to really not doing uh, much. I mean, you know, they, they made the switch. Brooks for the longest time was starting both Mo Wagner and Garrison Matthews. Matthews is still starting. Wagner now is buried. He was a DNPCD for a second straight game. Alex Len started for a second straight game and, you know, gave you very little. One of four shooting, one of four on free throws, just two rebounds for Alex Len in 17 minutes, 49 seconds as a starter. The season is unraveling here, okay? I mean, the East is terrible, and the Wizards, like I said, they have the third worst record in the Eastern Conference, tied with the Cavaliers for that spot, and the Wizards are getting exposed, playing all these games against good teams. You know, so it's so disheartening, because you had that great trip out West not long ago, in which the Wizards won a bunch of games against good teams, right? You go 3-1 and one out West with victories at Portland, at the Lakers, at Denver. You're like, wow, this Wizards team is really trending in the right direction. And since then, you know, you did have a win over Minnesota at home. But after that, road loss to Boston, home loss to Memphis, did get a home win over the Clippers. But now this four-game losing streak, a loss at Memphis, and then these three straight home losses. Philadelphia 76ers on Friday night, Milwaukee Bucks Saturday night, and now on Monday night. You're 14-24. and Remember, this is not an 82-game season. This is a 72-game season. So the thing of, ah, you know, it's still early, that kind of a thing, like, no, we're past the All-Star break here, right? 72-game year, uh, you're 38 games into that season. If you have any designs or hopes regarding making the postseason, you need to win some games. I mean, I don't know that any of this matters anymore, like, because even if you make the playoffs, what are you going to do there? But, I mean, they are really off a nice surge, a nice run for a while. We were enjoying that on this podcast, just falling apart in terms of the way the season is going. Wizards host the Sacramento Kings on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. So the schedule softens, but then it gets right back to being difficult again. Thursday night, you're home to the NBA-leading Utah Jazz at 7. Sunday night at the Brooklyn Nets. Tuesday night at the New York Knicks. Thursday night at the New York Knicks. The damn Washington Wizards. All right, so it wasn't just the Ryan Fitzpatrick news that broke late on Monday night. There also was significant Nationals news that came out on Monday night. The Nats announcing that, quote, after extensive discussion and planning with the government of the District of Columbia, health experts, and Major League Baseball, the Washington Nationals will once again be opening our gates to a limited number of fans for the beginning of the 2021 season end quote. Excellent news. This is exactly the news I've been wanting. I know it's the news that so many of you have been wanting. The Nationals end up being the last major league team to announce a plan for fans attending games to begin the 2021 regular season. That is not the Nats' fault. That is the fault of Washington, D.C., which took its sweet time in uh, coming up with what would be allowed here. So the Nats 
going to be having, uh, obviously, a reduced capacity at Nats Park, but it is a reduced capacity of 5,000 fans. I think that's a very reasonable way of doing this. It's enough to where you feel like it's worthwhile, but it's not so many to where you feel like abiding by the COVID-19 protocols is going to be an impossibility. This is always, to me, the way to go. You open things up. You do so safely. You do so responsibly. The DMV area has done a good job, all things considered, with the pandemic. The numbers in this area, thank God, have never spiked the way they've spiked in other parts of this country. People in this area should be trusted to behave responsibly. And especially when you think about Nationals Park, open air stadium, you know, expansive stadium, you can spread people out, you can do things the right way. You know, people say follow the science. The science clearly states you can have fans at a baseball game so long as you abide by the right protocols and the Nationals are going to be doing that. So I think it's very good news. Very happy for those of you who go to Nationals games. 5,000 fans should be really cool to see that. Uh, come opening night, Nationals, New York Mets, April 1st, you know, presumably Max Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom. Speaking of Mad Max, he is killing it right now in Grapefruit League play. And I know it's spring training. I know these are exhibition games. But Max Scherzer made Grapefruit League start number three in what ended up being a 4-2 Nats loss to the St. Louis Cardinals on Monday afternoon. And Max was sensational. Four scoreless innings, seven strikeouts versus two hits and no walks. How about this? I love this part of his outing. He threw 45 of his 58 pitches for strikes. I mean, that's sick. Okay, I, I don't care that it's an exhibition game. 58 pitches, you throw 45 of the 58 for strikes. And you combine that with what Max did in his previous outing. Another game against the Cardinals last Wednesday afternoon, what was a 3-2 Nats win. Max was dominant in that outing. Three perfect innings with five strikeouts. So over his last two exhibition starts here, Mad Max, seven scoreless innings, 12 strikeouts. You could say that uh, he is rounding into regular season form. And this is, of course, very good news. It's not unexpected news or anything like that. But remember, uh, Max did suffer that sprained left ankle about two weeks before the start of spring training, uh, suffered the injury while conditioning. So, you know, we just weren't 100% sure where he would be at. Not just with the ankle, but, you know, sometimes one thing leads to another. Maybe the ankle leads to some kind of an arm issue. You know, you just don't know, right? Max is not young. He's going into his age 36 season, has dealt with various minor ailments over the last few years. But he was mostly healthy in 2020. That is true. He just wasn't like Cy Young level Max in 2020. He has looked like Cy Young level Max over these last few games. So great news there with Max Scherzer looking as we know he can look. And Max Scherzer with the opportunity in 2021 to make it seven for seven in terms of delivering on that contract. It's one of the most amazing things how Max Scherzer has not just lived up to that seven year $210 million deal that he signed in January 2015. He has outperformed that contract. And the fact that he could end up making this again, seven for seven, where every year of the deal he's really good is just remarkable. It's getting the Orioles before we call it a podcast on this busy Tuesday. So Matt Harvey made his second start of the O's 2021 Grapefruit League season on Monday afternoon, Matt Harvey in a competition with Felix Hernandez, Wade LeBlanc, the three retreads, the three guys who the Orioles are trying to take a look-see at and see who, and it's, you know, not just necessarily one out of three, could be more than one out of the three, is worth keeping on the season opening roster. And as I keep saying, you rehab the guy and then you trade the guy. You fix him and then you flip him. That's the mode that the Orioles should be in with any and all veteran acquisitions. So Matt Harvey was okay on Monday afternoon. What ended up being a 12-3 Orioles win 
over the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, two runs in four innings. Did have four strikeouts, but also gave up five hits. A solo homer, a triple, and three singles, though he did issued no walks. The truth is, neither one of these guys, Harvey, King Felix, LeBlanc, has looked particularly good so far. And that in conjunction with the great performance that the O's have gotten so far out of Bruce Zimmerman, the lefty acquired from the Atlanta Braves in the Kevin Gaussman, Darren O'Day trade in 2018. We talked about Zimmerman on Monday's podcast. That's why Zimmerman right now, it certainly looks like is going to be a part of the season season opening rotation, right? I mean, the Orioles, you know, John Means, Keegan Aiken, Dean Kramer, and I think Bruce Zimmerman at this point is, uh, I mean, look, is he a lock for the rotation? I guess you can't say that, but he certainly has a commanding hold on one of those rotation spots. So it may well be Harvey, Felix, and LeBlanc are fighting for one spot, and it may not even be that. I mean, the Orioles aren't obligated to end up keeping any of these guys to begin the year. But Harvey was all right on Monday, and all right may be good enough to make this rotation because, as we've talked about, neither LeBlanc nor King Felix has looked very good so far. The other interesting thing with this Orioles exhibition game on Monday was this. So Rio Ruiz, who may be about to lose his job, or at the very least his spot as the Orioles' everyday third baseman, was like shot out of a cannon on Monday. It's, it's funny how, uh, <laughs> how things can go when your job security is being threatened. So we had multiple reports on Sunday that the O's are going to be signing free agent third baseman slash first baseman Michael Franco. We talked about that on Monday. And if you're signing Franco, it's, it's probably to be your everyday third baseman. Not that he's some great third baseman, but he's coming off a pretty good season for the Kansas City Royals. And Rio Ruiz is coming off a year in which he struggled offensively, had a mere OPS plus of 93. Uh, he had an 81 OPS plus in 2019. You know, he's going into his age 27 season. He's not some like uber prospect. He's just kind of a guy who the Orioles have had at third base over the last few years. Well, anyway, in this spring training, uh, Rio had been dealing with an illness. He had not done well in exhibition play up until Monday. And then on Monday, he busts out in this 12-3 win over the Pirates. Two doubles, makes a nice diving stop in the field. So it, it, it's funny how that works, right, in sports. Where it's like, okay, you're about to go down. You're about to be out. Oh, okay, I feel better. Oh, okay, I'm going to smack two doubles and uh, beat Brooks Robinson there at third base. But anyway, we'll see uh, what ends up transpiring. I mean, Ruiz can still make the team, but if you're going to sign Franco, it's probably not for him to be a backup. Like, you're probably bringing him here to be a starter. And again, hopefully end up flipping him come the trade deadline. Cannot emphasize that enough with the Orioles. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I want to hear from you on Ryan Fitzpatrick. What do you think? Are you happy? Are you angry? Should he be the QB1? Or are you like me and you want an open, honest, good faith competition? A three-way dance. Fitzpatrick versus Heineke versus Allen. And truly, may the best man win. Thank you for your continued support of the podcast. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you? Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.